So in the scripture lesson today, we heard of the emperor. Uh, very commonly, we know the scripture as Caesar. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and render unto God that which is God's. Caesar and God. So I picture it like this. We live in two realities which will be represented by these pieces of paper. One is the realm of Caesar, the kingdom of Caesar, the world in which we live, a world that has fallen, a world that is corrupt, a world that is in pain. It's the physical world in which we live. We are embodied human beings. We are part of that world. And so we'll put that right down here. But we also, as people of faith, live in another world as well, and that is the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Typically, there are three things that are really interrelated when we speak of the kingdom of God. And the first one is, wherever the abode is of God, that spiritual place in the presence of God, that is the kingdom of God, the place where the creator is. That's the kingdom of God. But there is also the future, that time that we look forward to when the world will be made right and we will all live together in harmony under the kingship of Christ. That's the kingdom of God. But there is a third meaning for the kingdom of God as well, and that is here and now today. We as the people of God in this world mandated to make the world a better place through love. Even though this is an imperfect world, it is still our role to act as if it is the kingdom of God. And so we move, we are motivated to as hard as it is to try to make the world now today the kingdom of God. So we live in the kingdom of God. So here they are. And so I stand on both of these. I stand with one foot in the kingdom of God and with one foot in the world today. And so can I take my foot off of the world? What happens if, if I do that? Well... Yes, and in this case, being literal, I'm not in the world. I can't remove my foot from the world because I'm part of the world, right? So I'm stuck there. If I remove my foot, I no longer am part of the world. And we hope that there will be a day when we're just standing on the one, but for right now, we're standing with one foot firmly in the world. And we have one foot in the kingdom of God. So if I take my foot off of that kingdom, what am I? I've, okay. I've rejected the kingdom of God. Let's just leave it at that. Right. We are part of the world. We have, we have, um, we have rejected the word of God. And as people of faith, we can't do that. So we stand, each one of us today, we stand with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. So what do we do? How do we deal with that? And so how do we deal with rendering unto God that which is God's and rendering unto Caesar 
that which is Caesar's. It's a difficult task, and it's a challenge for us in this world. So, to answer that question, maybe the first and best place to go is the Bible. What does the Bible tell us? Well, I'm going to recount three scriptures for you. The first one is from the book of Romans, chapter 13. Paul starts off that chapter by telling the people that rulers are appointed by God, that you must obey the rulers, that it is the role of the ruler, of the authorities, to keep order. And for that reason, we need to obey the authorities. Now, there's another scripture. And that can be found in the 8th chapter of 1 Samuel. It's an absolutely fascinating story to me. So, Samuel, who is the leader of the people of Israel who have now occupied the promised land, is getting older. In fact, it starts off by the people coming to Samuel and saying, Samuel, you know you're getting old. And your sons do not follow in your righteous ways. We need to have a king. We need to have a ruler. We need to have authority so that we can be like the nations around us. And Samuel was very disturbed about this, and Samuel goes to God. God's answer is, don't take it personally, Samuel. They're not rebelling against you, it's against me. But tell them what will happen if we give them a king. So Samuel goes back to the assembly and says, essentially, uh, if, if you get a king, that king is going to demand taxes from you. He's going to demand your children. He's going to demand the goods of your field and your household. He's going to demand your service. You're not going to like it. The people said, give us a king anyway because we want to be like the nations around us. So Samuel goes back to God. And God says, okay, give them a king. And so Samuel returns to the people and says, okay. So if this is what you want, then we will give you a king. Which then starts the whole story of the kings of Israel. Beginning with King Saul. He doesn't really work out that well, does he? So now we have compared to the first story that I told you. One in which... God isn't especially anxious and by God's own motive, according to that story, doesn't even want to appoint a king. Right? Now, let's compare that to some of what we read in the major prophets. So, you know, in, in, in the Old Testament, we, we, we group a certain uh, section into the minor and major prophets. And the difference is simply 
The major prophets are longer books because they cover a, um, a, 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 a lifetime or a, a, a long series of years where the minor prophets are usually concerned with one particular event or one specific issue. So it's not like the major prophets are major because they're better or more important. They just um, do not write as much because they're not dealing with this broad scope. And so in those broad scopes, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, uh, in Jeremiah, what we find in telling the story of their lives and the history of the period in which they live is that inevitably the authorities, the rulers, the kings became corrupt. And God gets angry. And God, all of them have at some point a pronouncement where God warns and um, even pronounces uh, very serious um, consequences to those rulers, those authorities, who are taking advantage of the people whom they're supposed to be guiding. And, you know, we, we often have people that don't know the Bible very well talk about the angry God of the Old Testament. Well, the fact of the matter is, as I read it, God isn't all that angry most of the time. But this is one time when God gets angry. When the people who are charged with taking care of the people do not do their jobs, God gets angry. And so how interesting, we have three different pictures of how we can relate and how God relates to authority and government, which we must have to organize. So, my question to you is, where do we do with this from the Bible? Where do we go with this? Because we have really three different images of how human beings can relate to the authorities around them. You know, our Bible tells a continuous story of God's salvation history. But it is made up of many voices from many different times and many different places. It is an incredible anthology. I think that there is no human condition or experience or feeling that somehow is not related in our scriptures. But in doing so, if we're dealing with one issue and one situation over here, it doesn't always apply to what's going on over here. And so there are times when we have to think carefully about what is the situation and what's being addressed. And so sometimes when we read the scripture, as in this case, when we're looking for how do we relate to the authorities around us, we have to look at the whole picture because if we focus on one place or the other place, well, it might or might not apply to us. And so the Bible is always a good place to start. But it sometimes is not always satisfactory because it is so vast. 
And so the question again then is, well, what do we do as people of faith in trying to understand how we render unto God that which is God's and how we render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, standing with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of the world. And the bottom line is that we are each responsible for ourselves in our own situation, in our own place. We must use our hearts and minds and brains and our faith to determine how we need to relate to the authorities around us. As United Methodists in the Wesleyan tradition, we have a history of social concern, and you can't have this social concern and the social relationship without government. That's part of it. It's part of it. And so, as United Methodists, we have an excellent tool. We're lucky. In fact, I have uh, my counterparts, uh, advocates from other faith traditions, who say, boy, I wish we had what you had. And what I'm talking about is our United Methodist Book of Resolutions. Are you aware that we have this? So, most people know the discipline. And if there's an issue going on in the church, let's check the discipline, right? We all know the discipline. But there is another book that is just as important as the United Methodist Discipline. And that is the United Methodist Book of Resolutions. And in the Book of Resolutions has every issue, political and social, on which the United Methodist Church has taken an official stance. And so you can read in this book what the stance is on any given topic on which the church has a stance. And so the, 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 the book of resolutions right now is about this thick. Sometimes it's this thick, sometimes it's in between. But the Book of Resolutions changes every four years. It changes at general conference. Some of the resolutions, some of the stances on our principles go out. New ones come in, or some that are already in there get modified, or some get ratified and just stay in there the way they are. And so every four years, it's always changing. It's slowly evolving. And so the most recent is the Book of Resolutions from the year 2016. And um, I would recommend, you know, the pastor has a copy, but I would recommend that the church get itself a copy, just for the church. And that you keep it here. You keep it somewhere here. So that when you want to know where the United Methodist Church stands on an issue, you can understand it, and it's beautifully written. It uses the framework of um, the United Methodist Social Principles, and then it puts in with details, uh, wherever it belongs, the resolutions from General Conference. And they tend to, to give you a biblical background, a historical background, and they're very well thought out. And it is worth knowing. Now, as, as in sovereign individuals, you don't have to agree. 
right? You're Americans. We're Americans. We're, we're entitled to our own opinions. You don't have to agree with the stance of the United Methodist Church to be a United Methodist. However, you ought to be aware of it. And you ought to know that you belong to a church that's not afraid to take stances on social issues. And that's my message to you today. That as a United Methodist, you have to work out your own understanding of how you relate to Caesar as a person of faith. But there is a help for you. The Bible and, as United Methodists, the United Methodist Book of Resolution.